Give it up for Thurman Thomas! Woo! Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I, it just struck me. I, I probably sounded like Oprah Winfrey right there. <laughs> it's, it's like, but Oprah's a bear fan, not a Saint fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, well, <laughs> we'll deal with the Saints later, Mr. Thomas. <laughs> no, we will not. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, one of our elders has been poisoning his mind about the Saints, so um, we'll get yours, Mr. Thomas. So... <laughs> You were born on May 16, 1966 in Missouri City, Texas, which is near Houston, and you played high school football there, very, very highly recruited by many colleges. Tell us about your early years and what that was like in, in, in Houston and such. Well, you know, I grew up an um, only child. Um, my mom and dad got uh, divorced when uh, I was like three, so I, I moved around to my grandmother, my, my, my uncles, my aunts, so... Um, but, uh, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, football was the thing. And um, like I told the group before, I didn't start playing football until like eighth grade. So I, I got a late start. I thought I was going to be the next Reggie Jackson. I was a baseball player. And uh, I loved baseball more than I did uh, love football. But one day that changed in eighth grade. My coach came and actually got me off the bus and said, we would love for you to try out and play football. I was like, well, coach, I really don't want to, you know, I'm going to be a major league baseball player, you know, that's my goal. And uh, so I got off the bus and we went out to practice and we, we go into the locker room in junior high, eighth grade, and uh, they give me my stuff and I have no idea where the thigh pads go, where the knee pads go, yeah. because this is my first time ever seeing a football uniform right in front yeah. of my face. So... <laughs> Um, so I put it on and go out and say, hey, it was, it was a live scrimmage. And they said, hey, look, we're going to see what you can do. You know, so uh, first play's coming to you. So I actually got the ball on the first play and ran like a 70-yard touchdown. <laughs> and I turned back around and everybody's giving each other high five and whatever. <laughs> and I'm like... Ah, oh, that's pretty cool. So <laughs> get used to that. <laughs> I can get used to this, you know. So after that, you know, I continued to play football and didn't play uh, uh, didn't play uh, baseball anymore. Uh, so uh, went on through my high school career, uh, won a state championship, lost a state championship, and got to the semifinal. Um, won like thirty nine out of forty two games in high school. Um, like one of only two players to ever been name you know in texas football is really oh. huge so yeah having lived one there, of it's like huge. only two players in the history of texas high school football players to be named all state at running back and defensive back and uh but left there and went to oklahoma state yeah. and um you know that's where it pretty much all started for me yeah and then uh that's the school you chose you played with another guy and if you know even a little about football you heard the name Barry Sanders. You actually played with Barry Sanders, and he was, uh, was it one or two years younger than you, Thurman? Uh, he was two years younger. Two years. Yeah. And uh, you had a great career there. You graduated as the all-time leading rusher in school history at 45, 195 yards rushing, and then 51, 46 total yards from scrimmage. And, uh, and then your senior year, at the end of 
the college season, the best teams play in, in certain bowl games, and you played in the Sun Bowl in 1987, ran for 157 yards, and kept Barry Sanders on the bench for most of the game, which is a pretty amazing accomplishment. <laughs> so uh, at that point, did you think you'd be a high draft pick? You obviously had a very good career at Oklahoma State, OSU, and um, did you think you'd be a high draft pick? Well, I thought going into, you know, after playing four years, I got hurt my junior year, um, had a partial tear of my ACL, so that kind of set me back, but had an outstanding uh, senior year. I, I finished, I think I finished seventh in the Heisman voting. Yes. And uh, so at that time, I thought, yeah, I might have a chance to make it to the National Football League. And you go to the Combine, and a lot of teams were saying, well, we're going to take you in the first round. You know, it was like uh, the Rams, the Falcons, uh, the, the Saints. Hope, uh, don't say the Falcons. You Don't swear in God's house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, but, the, and the Saints. And the, the Saints, Saints. So, yeah. And, so you so could have. And actually, my hometown, the Houston Oilers, you know, at that time, Jerry Glanville was the head coach. They were like, yeah, we're going to take you in the yeah. first round. So, and obviously they didn't. The, the Bills took me in the second round with the 40th pick. And, uh, um, but uh, like you heard on the clip there, Mike Coach, former coach who passed away a couple of years ago, Elijah Pitts, really yes. came forward and really said, you know, this is a guy that we need to pick because, and if you, if you ever have Marv Levy here, Marv Levy wanted to pick a guy named Lars Tate. He was out of the University of Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, yes. Marv was really I, high on him. Lars but Tate. Eli convinced Marv and Bill Poley and those guys that I was the guy that, uh, that they should drive. I just think you're a little better than Lars <laughs> Tate. I, I don't know who he went to, but uh, I, I know it wasn't good. But you, you, lead it to it. you led to it, so I'll just shorten the question, you know. Your draft stock slides. Some people don't, don't draft you when they say they would, and I know it's a game of poker in the draft. How did it feel to go all the way to still very high pick, early second round, 4-8th overall? How'd that feel? Well, I felt like I was betrayed. I was lied to, uh, and I didn't think at that time that was what the NFL was all about. Yeah. I thought this was big business, you know, you, you go to a certain team, you talk to a certain team, and if they say they're going to take you, they're going to take you right. uh, in the first round. But that didn't happen. And uh, uh, so my rookie year in 1988, I used to, my, my roommate was Leonard Smith. And Leonard used to get to the hotel about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Uh, we had a meeting at 9. I used to get there about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And I would actually watch some of the draft tape because – now you see on ESPN now where they're at somebody's school or at somebody's house. Yeah. Well, actually, I was the first guy that ever did that back in 1988. It did and what? They actually they came, came to, your to my home house and, and had a ca live and camera. And had a live camera wow. there. So it you were was, the first person to do that. Huh? Yes, I was the first one to do that. And obviously, ESPN actually thought I was going in the first round too. Sure, of course. So I ended up slip, slipping to the second round, and the lady that was there, her name was Andrea Kramer, and yeah, she was yeah. like, you want us to leave? I was like, nope. ESPN is going to sit here and suffer just like I am. So you're not going anywhere. So no. They stayed there the entire time until I got called, you know, with the 40th pick by the Buffalo Bills. So, yeah, it was, it was a little... Yeah. I was upset. I, wow. I was upset, and I was, and I was hurt, too, about the whole situation. But uh, like I said, it turned out for the best. You know, and today, the theme that we're focusing this interview on and, and my little devotional afterward is on making a comeback from labels. And immediately you see how you can, a label can defeat you 
or it can energize you. And here you see how Thurman used it as motivation. Yeah, I was not going to let it defeat No. Me. I can tell you that right now. No, you're not am, that kind of person. No, I, I was definitely motivated to, to prove a lot of people wrong. Right. And uh, at that point in time in my life. But like I said, I did that my first year, my rookie year in 88. But after that, I kind of just let it everything go. So right, right. Well, it worked for you. You know, when you played for the Bills that um, – oh, excuse me, I, I jumped ahead um, – when you were with the Bills, your rookie year you started and played, and you had very, very, very good first year and an incredible career. Let me just list briefly just some. Um, the card isn't big enough really to hold them all, and I'm deadly serious. Five Pro Bowls, five All-Pro teams. Now, the All-Pro, the, the Pro Bowl is if you're the best in your conference. In the NFL, there's the NFC and AFC. All-Pro means you're the best overall. Three times you were first-team All-Pro running back. Sec, uh, two times, second team All-Pro running back. Um, you were the NFL MVP in 1991. That means considered the most valuable player of every player in the NFL in 1991. And every 10 years, the NFL has what it's called its all-decade team. In 1990s, in the 90s, Thurman was the all-decade running back of a whole decade. Uh, you had it's incredible, absolutely. And then maybe, maybe the most amazing stat, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it began your second year in the league. You had four consecutive years in the league in which you led the entire NFL in total yards from scrimmage. And just before you get excited about that, the, the, the previous record was three held by an, a hallowed name in NFL history, Jim Brown. Breaking a record by Jim Brown is incredible. That is just incredible. And, and Jim reminds me that every time I see him at the Hall of Fame. <laughs> at the Hall of Fame every year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Were you at Canton, just a Hall of Fame weekend this year? I try to go every single yeah. year. Uh, I, I got inducted in 2007, and I've only missed one year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those deals where you go back, and, sure. and I'm still like a little kid. <laughs> you know, I, I see like Dick Buckers and Jim Brown and... Oh, just the names just keep going on and on. Terry Bradshaw, Joe Green, Tony yes. Dorsett. I mean, the names just go on and on, and I'm just sitting and there. And you're like, there with wow. them. And your bust is there with them, like John Madden said, talking to each other at night, huh? I think they do. <laughs> I actually think they do. Yeah. You think people fully recognize your achievement? Because I have to be honest with you, I'm a football junkie. I knew you were a very good back. I knew you deserved the Hall of Fame. I have to admit, until I did this research, I, I underappreciated you a little bit. Do you think others did? Now, like I told the other group, you know, when I played football, it was never about me or what I did. So, I mean, I, I really, wh rather, whether people appreciate right. it or not, I don't really care. Yeah. I mean, right. I really don't. I mean, yeah. I, you know, the one thing that I've done over the course of my career is that, you know, and I didn't tell you this the first time when the first group was here. You know, seeing like highlights and people like talking about what I did, it really makes me uncomfortable. I, I mean, I'm just a humble human being. I, I, I have friends that if we're out somewhere and they started like, oh, you know who this is? Yeah, and you yeah. know what? I'll be like, <laughs> no, don't do that. I do not like. 
I never talk about myself, yeah. and I never, and I, and I like, it's, I don't know what it is. I just feel very uncomfortable yeah. sometimes when people talk about me and say certain things. Uh, I, I've been that way yeah. my entire life. Yeah. Uh, because it's, throughout my career, it was never about me. It was never about me. It was always about my teammates. Everybody it was says about that. everybody else. And uh, so. Everybody says that. That's a universal statement about you. Team first player. Which leads to the next thing uh, that I want to talk to you about is that the Bills had some strong personalities. Obviously, Jim Kelly, <laughs> Bruce Smith, Andre Reid, yourself. Um, and you were called the Bickering Bills. So that was a label. That was another label. Not just you individually, but the whole team. And uh, was that fair? And tell us, I know you shared a story, but tell us about you know, a classic example of why you were called the Bickering Bills. You shared a great one first service. <laughs> Well, it all started back in 1989, and, you know, Jim had got hurt. Frank Wright had came in, and we had won, like, three games in a row. And all of a sudden, you know, Frank became this hero, and Jim was like, I don't know if Jim liked it or not. Uh, let, me, let me settle that. He didn't like it. Yeah, he did. I mean, Jim was the face of the franchise, no. you know. And so Jim came back, and um, we went on a three-game losing streak. And, uh, and then in one game, Jim got hurt, and he said something about we have five offensive linemen, and, but we only really have four good ones. And the guy that he was talking to, referring to, was Howard Ballard, who came in with me, the house. He was a very good player. He was a very good player. House, he even made the Pro Bowl he a couple did, yeah. of times, you know. So he said that about Howard, and um, actually – I was here in Rochester doing a show with Daryl Talley. Yeah. And the guy asked me, he said, what's the problem with the Bills? And I was like, quarterback, you know? So like, <laughs> I just went ahead and said it. You know, I don't know why it came out, but I just went ahead and said it. So anyway, that's when we became the bickering Bills. So after that show, it was on a Monday. Tuesday, our day off. Wednesday, I get there early and person that's looking for me, the security guy said, hey, you need to go straight up to Bill Polian's office. He was a general manager at the time. I'm like, all right, yeah, no problem, you know. So I go up to Polian's office, and he says to me, look, we got a problem. I was like, what? What's the problem? He you had said, no idea? No idea. Okay. No idea what he wanted <laughs> to talk about. He said, you can't be saying that about Jim. You can't be talking about, you know, what the problem is or whatever. And I went, I looked Dead in the polling islands, like, did you talk to Jim about the problem? He's like, no, that's not that, but you can't. I'm like, I stopped him right there in his track. I said, wait a minute. If you're going to let Polian, if you're going to let Jim Kelly say anything that he wants to say about one of my teammates, a guy who I was drafted with, then we got a problem. And uh, so I was like, so it's okay for Jim to say whatever he wants about anybody. But you want to get on me because right. I said something about Jim. And he just kind of looked at me and we need to talk about this, you know. So <laughs> at that point in time, I was like, hey, look, Poland, I've always, I'm from Texas. And I've always been around on teams that talked about team first, not individuals. Right. And basically, I told Polian, I said, look, if this is going to continue, basically, you, you, you might need to trade me. 
That was basically what I was getting at. If you're going to continue to let Jim talk about right. him not do anything to him, but if I do something, all of a sudden we got a big problem. Some things need to change. Yeah. And so, as you saw in the clip there, when you saw the guys holding hands, you know, that's when we became a team, even though we lost that game. That was a playoff game against Cleveland. We lost that one 34 to 31. We became a team then. Yeah. And uh, so. Um, so you leveraged it. You leveraged the bickering into something positive. You, a lot of times when people argue. Yeah, but I didn't want to be the guy to do it, though. Right, right. Because no. we had older guys on the team like Bruce yeah, and Andre yeah. and Darren Talley. Second-year yeah. player. Second-year yeah. player, you know. But that's the type of guy I was because I've never been on a team that was all of a sudden not together. Right. But I'll tell you, Thurman, I think knowing a little bit about leadership, leadership manifests itself when you have credibility and your stats and your team-first mentality gave you some credibility. So you were more of a leader by person than by title. I thought at that time I was becoming a leader. Absolutely. In which I actually was. You were. Uh, but it didn't actually start out that way because earlier, what I forgot to tell you is that I got a lot of hate mail from a lot of Buffalo Bills fans saying, you cannot be talking about our quarterback. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, so you got well, some labels. Yeah, I got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, you're, you know, you're the problem, not Jim. Right. I'm like, yeah. okay, but uh, you let it go. Now I let it go. Let's talk about the Super Bowls. And before I do, let me remind you that the New Orleans Saints have won one. So I. <laughs> and let and let me remind you that they will never win another one again. <laughs> Let me remind you that unless they get a bounty. <laughs> Let me remind you, we put you up at a very nice hotel last night. <laughs> well, I, I guarantee you, Drew will never be in that hotel. <laughs> I tap it out. You win. Uh. <laughs> The Bills made four Super Bowls starting in 1990, Super Bowl 25, and you had a fantastic game. 135 yards rushing, five catches for 55 yards, one touchdown, and um, even though the Bills lost uh, and O.J. Anderson was the game most valuable player, you, you, with all due respect to O.J. Anderson, you had a much better game. You deserved to be the MVP. There was rare precedent. Chuck Howley for the Cowboys, I believe, was a co-MVP uh, when they beat the Colts and, or when they lost to the Colts. You should have won the MVP if it was purely on that. Some thought uh, of that. And then also, we all know about wide right. And I think, you know, poor Scott Norwood, unfortunately, deals with that label of wide right. But what happened in that game? Why did you lose to a team that you were likely better than? You were favored, certainly, to be Yeah, we giant. were favored. But, uh, you know, and if you watch ESPN, you watch Herm Edwards say, you know, that's why you play the game. <laughs> you know, he says that over and over right. and over again. And I think we were like, maybe nine or ten points favorite, you know, to win that football game. But as players, we didn't feel that way because early in the season we had played the Giants and we had beat them up in New, in New Jersey. I think we beat them 17 to 13. And uh, so we, we knew that we weren't ten points uh, favorite right. over the Giants to right. beat them in that Super Bowl. And, uh, but, uh, and like players say today and like we said after the game, we should have never let it come down to Scott Norwood trying to make a 47-yard field goal on grass, which he had never done before on grass, period. Whether it was in Miami right. or Tampa Bay or whatever 
uh, stadium. Because you guys grass. normally play on turf, so he's probably kicking 75, 80 percent right, of his exactly. kicks. Right, exactly. So we didn't really, you know, and 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 the thing that I like about the players that I played with on those uh, four years uh, with the Buffalo Bills going to Super Bowl is that, you know what, nobody never complained. Nobody never pointed the finger at anybody saying that you lost a game or whatever. Right. I think I tell you what, the most interesting thing about, and I know you got you want to talk about uh, a couple of more Super Bowls, but the most interesting thing that you will find out about that football team was that after the game, as a player, you know, Certain players get up and talk and say certain things, you know, when you win or when you lost. But I think for stronger individuals on those football teams, and I'll include myself because I did this in the last Super Bowl against Dallas. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. That's okay. But I did this in the last Super Bowl against Dallas and every other hard defeat uh, that, uh, that we had. Um, actually, Scott Norwood did it too. And uh, Jim Kelly did it in the first Super Bowl. After the game, Marv gives his speeches or whatever. And I gave, my, I gave a speech uh, after the fourth uh, Super Bowl when I, when I fumbled and James Watson ran in for a touchdown. Yeah. I, I knew that was a big part of the game, big play in the game. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing that I like about this, this football team is that I stood up. And like I said, Jim has done it. Daryl has done it. Bruce has done it. Uh, I stood up and apologized to the whole team for that play. Mm. And that's the thing that I like about the players that we had on it. We held, I held myself accountable. Yes, you did. When anybody in the room probably wouldn't have got up and said anything. You know, I got up, I apologized to the team for fumbling, for, you know, changing the momentum of the game. And Scott Norwood did it when we got into the locker room you know, for uh, after the Giants. So right. that right there tells you what type of team and what type of players we had on our football team. You know, we never pointed the finger at right. anybody. But we also held ourselves account- accountable for whatever happened if something bad happened on the football field. That's right. And, and see how they used the label that they were given, bickering bills and everything. They used it and leveraged it for something really, really good. Um, the next Super Bowl, the second one you lost, I remember I was living in Dallas at the time watching that at a friend's house, and um, you didn't have a strong game. And some people said the reason why is because it started off with you not being able to find your helmet. It's a very famous story, and you had an interesting answer. But people labeled you, well, Thurman can't find his helmet. He's not ready. He didn't prepare, which is ridiculous because, as we saw in the video, you were, were as prepared. You knew other people's positions on right. the offense. Uh, what really happened with your losing ever? You put it on the 34-yard line because your number 34 is a tradition. Yep. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I mean, it's like this. Um, if the other offense is going that way, so obviously I would put my helmet down on this side. You know, it just makes common sense. You know, if they yeah. score, they still got to kick off and right. still got to go down there. If they punt, they still it's still going right. to be down there. Right. So, uh, and it's vice versa. It goes the other way, too. So, we're going – Washington, I mean, this is, I mean, this is not like this started like right away. You know, this been started doing this all like your career. I'm, I've been doing this my whole career, yeah. even in college. You know, actually, actually, my college coach, uh, Bill Shimmick, who was a running back coach at Oklahoma before he got to Oklahoma State, told me of the idea. OK, this is what you need to do. Yeah. I'm like, so you'll never lose it. I'm like, all right. So I did that my entire career. I even right. had I even had two trainers on the bills that knew, okay, 
all right, you got to go this way. So I would go put it down there. They would actually help me, like, okay, right. you got to go put it down there. So anyway, they punt, Washington punts, and um, so I'm like, huh, what, this is why they're punting. Now, I know beforehand that there's not going to be a TV timeout, okay? So they're punting, so I'm looking, and it's not there. So I'm like really going crazy. Now, I don't want to put on anybody. I don't want to put on Steve Christie's helmet or somebody. I'm going to get killed, you know? A kicker, man. Yeah, not a kicker. Play. Yeah, I, yeah. So they go, first play go by, the trainer is coming, running toward me and going like, here, here, here. I'm like, he like, I have no idea why it was down there instead of down here. So that's the story. That's the only story I've ever told. So, so I, I, I and to be honest with you, the only person that really know what happened. <laughs> you know, he was challenging me. You know, so it's it's funny. I I, I spoke at an event yesterday morning, and uh, a bunch of men there were like, "Oh, we know why it happened," and and yet everybody got a story. Everybody, it's, it's sort of like who killed? How did JFK? Get right. assassinated. So I know. I can't tell you how it I, happened. I know. Well, you have uh, a label as a team that you couldn't win the big one, and I think yeah. people underappreciate. Nobody's ever been to four straight Super Bowls, and uh, it's awesome. Yeah. How do how do you deal with that label? You can't win the big one. How do you respond when people say that? Well, usually the people that say that are not in Buffalo, they're outside of Buffalo, yeah. <laughs> outside of Rochester area, right. in another right. state somewhere. But uh, I, you know what, as a human being, as a person, you just deal with it. Right. You deal with it the best you possibly can. And uh, we've learned to deal with it as players, um, as former players. Um, uh, you know, we, we go to a lot of golf tournaments together. Yeah, a lot of golf tournaments. Myself, Daryl Talley, Jim Kelly, and all the guys. We go to a lot of golf tournaments together, and people are very surprised that, you know, uh, like this one golf tournament where I was at with Mark Clayton and Mark Duper. They used to play with the Miami Dolphins. They were wide receivers, yeah. and Daryl and I jumped into a golf cart together, and you know, Mark was like, "John, don't you guys?" get tired of each other. I say, no, we actually love each other. Yeah. And he was very surprised to hear a statement like that. I said, why, don't you hang around Marino? He said, I ain't seen Marino in 10 years. Really? So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, wow, what, what is this? You know, and, and, and every time I'm around a former player, I tell you what, if you ever get a chance to talk to Franco Harris, and he's a guy who won four Super Bowls. Yeah. Okay? Won four Super Bowls. With Pittsburgh Steelers. With Pittsburgh. If you ever get a chance to talk to, about, talk to him, he will flat out tell you one of the greatest teams ever was the Buffalo Bills. No doubt, no doubt. Well, I mean, and as a former, and as a player, you know, that makes you feel good. That's right. You know, because you have so many great players out there that say as, you know, Barry Sanders, uh, Warren Moon, they always say, I wish I could have went to one, one Super Bowl, let alone four. Right. So... Yes, we know we have that label as yeah, losers or what have you, but we feel like, hey, we put the bills on a map. 
definitely did. Because no before that, it was just, what, O.J. Simpson? <laughs> and we want to put that And chap- we kind of put that aside <laughs> a little bit, you know? So we put Buffalo on the map. And what, you know what? As former players that went to those, we're very proud of what we tried Absolutely. to accomplish. So you rejected, you rejected the label that you're losers yeah. because you're really winners, even if you didn't ultimately win the game to make it as incredible. Because there's nobody that if we're somewhere, I guarantee you nobody has ever called Bruce Smith a loser. <laughs> I guarantee you nobody's called Daryl Talley a loser yeah. and live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's much respect. You know, you yeah. hear certain... Because certain people are going to say whatever they want to say. But most of the time when we're out, you know, we have people come up to us congratulating us on what we accomplished. So uh, that's uh, it's it's great. Yep. Shift gears a little bit. You told me on Friday that you grew up um, going to spend summers with your grandmother and she brought you to church and for Lakeshore tenders three times a week. (laughs) I didn't even just thought. Yeah. Preach it a little bit. Anyway, and it uh, felt like five times <laughs> because on Sunday we would go from like eight o'clock in the morning to like four in the afternoon. So that felt like five times a week. <laughs> and then you later later talked about um, after your career, you, you, it was a challenge, and you allowed me yeah. permission to share this that you um, had problems with drinking and alcohol, yeah. and um, you battled depression now, and you had to take some antidepressants now mm-hmm. just to understand. Because the NFL is such a violent contact sport, many players suffer from depression, not because, just because they're out of the spotlight, but because of physiology, uh, taking those traumatic hits. You know, we know people, sadly, like a junior Seau, most likely took his life not because he was depressed about his career ending, but because of physiological reasons. And then also, uh, it affected your family with your lovely wife, Patty, who'll be here next service, and your children. But something incredible happened in 2005. Tell us about that. Well, like I said, I uh, actually um, um, checked myself into a rehab facility to find out if I really, truly was an alcoholic because I had that throughout my entire family on my dad's side. And not really even thinking about it. I I wanted to find out. And so, uh, and, and I knew the drinking had gotten a little out of control. And, but I wanted to find out for myself. So before I even checked in, you know, I, I went like three weeks without even having a drink. And so I get to this place, this facility, and before I got there, they actually tell you to come into the facility, whatever problem you have. And I'm like, well, I haven't had a drink in three weeks. I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. And so I get there. I don't do it. I get there and, you know, he put you into like detox or whatever. And I'm in like detox for like three hours, you know, and I'm in there with other people in there and they're like shaking or whatever. And I'm in there. I'm like, this is not for me, you know. And so they get me and send me to another room and they're thinking like, I actually heard one of the counselors say, what is he doing here? I'm like, it's only a long story short. I go there for 28 days, but uh, that's when... um, that's when I found my faith. That's when I found God. That's when I started um, putting all my trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ Yeah. at that time. And uh, it has been 
it was one of the best things that I ever did as far as checking myself into yeah. something like that and finding out really, you know, what was going to help me save my life. Yes. And beyond your physical life, your spiritual beyond soul. Beyond my physical, it was my spiritual, yeah. yeah. And, and before that, you get into these places and you come out and you start thinking back to things that you might have did or you might have said that hurt my family. And uh, I got to thinking back, I'm like, wow, I, I really did at that point in time hurt my family and was really not the person that I thought I should be. Right, right. And once I, once I left that rehab place back in 2004, you know, I continued to serve the Lord and yeah. continued to... You talked about reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. The Bible became my 12 steps. Yeah. And the 12 steps did come from the Bible. They come from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Exactly. So, I mean, all that came right into me. Right. And um, I tell you what, it was the best move. And uh, I, I'm so at peace right now with myself. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. I just enjoy life more than I used to. Uh, my family. Um, it's been, a, it's been a wonderful journey. The journey's not over no. for me. Um, continue to get stronger and stronger every single day. It's, it's incredible because my last question here is, how has your faith in Christ changed you? And you hear a man that admitted, hey, I was not the best dad for my family. And then you hear him just on that video say, you know, when I die, and at the end of my life, it's going to be said, I was a great man for my family. And I think your wife will bear witness to that. But how has your faith in Christ changed you these last seven years, Thurman? Oh, man. I live life to the fullest yeah. every single day. Um, there's not a time where I go by where I, tr I, I actually go out of my way to, to uh, every single day now to try to help somebody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I leave the house in the morning after I drop my... my uh, my 16-year-old daughter off at school, I make it a point in my life when I go to work to try to make as many people smile as I possibly can. Because you never know what they're going through. Right. And if I can make them smile, make them happy, change their life, I've done my job. Yeah. And I'm doing my job through Christ. Yes. In which I totally believe in and... Uh, I can't, I can't tell you how relieved and thrilled that I am that that happened to me back in 2004 and 2005. Yes. Because I don't know where I would yeah, be today. Absolutely. Now, Thurman, this is uh, from my heart. You, you, you just coincidentally end there that you want to make people smile, you know. I mean, no disrespect to Stevie Johnson at all, none. But we found out two weeks ago that, you know, he would not be able to make it. And um, I just wanted to hold you right there. Okay. Why was Stevie even the first choice? I should have been the first choice. <laughs> excuse me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent right now. Excuse me a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why, because I'm a first class... <laughs> jerk 
I'm a total No, jerk. you're fine. You're and, fine. And I want to I... say this, Thurman. You, you know, we talked to your agent uh, with Octagon, and you graciously did it. You gave me 35 minutes on the phone Friday. And, you know, he emailed me yesterday. And, and by the way, that whole 35 minutes, I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. I was driving. I, was, I had to take my... I had to take my... <laughs> I had to take my mom to the airport, you know. I, I, Did you have it on speakerphone? Yeah, I was on speakerphone. Okay, 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 okay. And, uh, and you asked me a question after we had hung up. She, and she told me to say, you know what, won't you just tell him what you've always te- been telling me for the last 17 years? I'm like, what is that? She, she said, no, you've been telling me. I said, no, I, said, no, I think I'm. And she said, she said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Mm. And I was like. Proverbs said, 3, 5. Yeah, and I was like, I think I've been telling you that for like 20 years. She said, no, it has been longer, but you really, truly yeah. started believing it yeah. seven or eight years yes. ago. Yes, yeah. And so, so that was, she heard the whole conversation. Oh, well, tell your mother thank you. And, I, and again, from my heart, you know, we wanted this series to end strong. And again, no disrespect to Stevie, but everybody said, I can't believe you got Thurman Thomas. Thurman, I cannot thank you enough. Oh, that's great. Thank you. You know, Thurman is, is an amazing person. I'm, I, I'm thankful beyond just the whole experience of helping you uh, here, having him here, but just, just the whole experience of getting to know somebody who's inspired my faith in the Lord. And, and he's come back from some amazing labels, as have the Bills, and his story is so inspiring. I, as I'm getting um, aging, I'm experiencing a label, and that label is old. It's my label. My son calls me old man. Um, occasionally, when he gets eloquent, he says, hey, elderly one, That's what he says. And uh, I remember one of our person who used to attend our church one time said, if my son ever talked to me that way, I'd smack him. I said, if your son ever talked to you that way, you'd be proud because he means it is only a form of respect. And it's a sign of the tremendous bond my son and I have. But I came across a list that's entitled, How to Know You're Growing Old. I thought I'd just share some of the reasons you know you're getting old. You know you're getting old when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Or the little black book that you have only contains names that end in MD. (laughs) Or you get winded playing chess. Or you join a health club and never go. Or you put on a sweatsuit to get comfortable. (laughs) Or your mind makes contracts your body can never meet. Or when you know all the answers but nobody's asking you questions. You look forward to a dull evening. You turn off the light for economic reasons, not romantic ones. (laughs) You sit on a rocking chair, but you can't get it going. Your knees buckle, but your belt won't. Here's another one. This is my favorite. You're 17 around the neck, 42 around the waist, and 106 around the golf course. (laughs) That would have been a good round for me last week. Um, you, You dial long distance, and it wears you out. You just can't stand people who are intolerant. The best part of your day is when your alarm clock goes off. A fortune teller offers to read your face 
My wife told me not to share that one. Your back goes out more than you do. And then finally, your pacemaker makes the garage door go up whenever a pretty lady walks by. Just, just, well, these things happen to you. You're getting older. These are labels. And your label might not be old, but maybe you are given some kind of label. Loser, failure, incompetent, geek, jerk, drama queen. Maybe you've been given a label. Sometimes these labels are placed on us by very insensitive people, very misguided people. And sometimes they can be hurtful, unfair, and impact our lives in some incredibly negative ways. This morning, I want to look at someone who lived in the Old Testament era of the divided kingdom of Israel, who had a tragic label, but yet he overcame it. Take out your Lakeshore notes. In your program are the notes. All of us are going to look at right there. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. We're going to look at 1 Chronicles 4, 9 to 10. And it comes from a very short two-verse section in First Chronicles of an account, listen to this, an account that is found in the middle of a list of names, what we call a genealogical list, over 600 names. Almost all of them. This one gave that one, this one begat that one, this one begat that one, this one got this. And in the middle of over 600 names, there's one person that pops out, and the, and the chronicler, inspired by God, says, you know, let me just add a little bit of information about someone here. And the someone is a guy named Jabez. First Chronicles 4.9, there was a man named Yabaz, Jabez, who was more distinguished than any of his brothers. His mother named him Jabez because his birth had been so painful. Now, why was Jabez more distinguished than any of his other brothers? And why did he stand out amongst over 600 names and he gets the press and he gets a little bit of ink about his life and the other 600 plus do not? The secret is Jabez overcame the challenges that most others don't about labels and it all started with his name. Jabez's name in Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, means distress or pain. His name was pain. In fact, in Hebrew, his name sounds like pain. It's, it's a play on words. And scholars debate was that the New Living Translation, the version that I rendered here, suggests the first view, which I think is my view, that he was called pain because when Jabez's mother, Mrs. Jabez, gave birth to him, it was a very painful labor. So maybe he was called pain because it was painful to her. A lot of times in the Hebrew experience, you would name a child after an experience in life. Or it could have been that he was born in a painful time in Israel's history. Regardless, there was some kind of pain associated with it. And he would wear that like a label. That was his name. Can you imagine having your name be Pain? Hey, Pain. How you doing, Pain? Hey, can I tell you something? What? You're a real Pain. <laughs> you know, you can imagine how weary that could have got. But Jabez distinguished himself because he knew how to make a comeback from labels. And in the next verse, in verse 10, I'm going to give you three principles in this simple little verse on how you can make a comeback from labels. If people are labeling you, judging you, putting tags on you, you don't have to wear it. And I want to give you three ways to bust through this label that you may have. The first thing you want to do, whenever somebody tries to label you, shed the label. Shed it. Have a life vision to do something greater for God. Whenever you want to shed something, 
it's not just a matter of getting rid of the old. You've got to replace it. There's an old saying, you can't resist a feeling. You've got to replace it. And, and, and so to shed a label, get something positive in its place. Have a vision to do something in your life that honors God, that's greater for God. Don't accept that label if it's unfairly given to you. Obviously, if there's some kernel of truth in it, accept that. Reject the label, but accept the correction in your life. And how do you do that? You have a vision for your life that's greater and God-honoring. Notice verse 10a. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel. He prays, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. That you would bless me, that you'd enlarge my territory. Now, at first blush, reading it, it looks like a selfish prayer. Bless me and enlarge my territory. It sounds selfish. In the context and in the original language, that textual evidence is it was not selfish. It was a vow, a request from God to do something great in his life for God. He says, bless me. He says, God, I want you to bless me. You know why? Because I know you're the blesser. The emphasis is more on the fact that he's acknowledged God as the blesser than he is on receiving the blessing. And then he says, enlarge my territory. That's a vision. A vision is an ability to see the future as something better and greater in your life. And for Jabez, it was to, to honor God with it. I like what one person said about vision. He said this, vision is merely hope with a blueprint. Isn't that good? Vision is hope with a blueprint. George Barna's book, The Power of Vision, says vision is never about status quo. Vision is about stretching reality to extend beyond its existing state. And that's what Jabez did with his label. His brothers and his friends, they were content being normal and average but Jabez says, I want something bigger than me. I want something bigger in my life to honor God with. And many people today live life with no goal, no master plan, no vision, and no ambition. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And so many people are like that. They just simply exist. I encourage all of you, you need to have a plan, a vision, a dream for your life. Because no one can do this for you. You cannot have, a, have somebody else, can you give me a dream for my life? It doesn't happen. If you don't have a dream for your life, you're drifting in life. If you stop dreaming, you start dying. And when you stop setting goals, you stop growing. So my question to you is, what are you dreaming about these days, if anything? What are you dreaming about for your life? Some of you need to find a dream You've never given it a lot of thought. Find a dream from God. And some of you need to change your dream. You've had a dream for your life that isn't God-honoring or isn't really working. Maybe you need to change your dream to do something that honors God. Or maybe some of you need to pursue your dream. You know the dream. It's the right dream. You're just not pursuing it. Pursue that dream to honor God. The second thing you need to do is not only shed the label. You've shed it. Now you've got to overcome the label. You've shed it. But other people want to keep flicking it on you. You're a jerk, you're a loser, you're a this. Overcome the label. Allow God's strength to carry you in the trials. That's how you're going to overcome it. You let God carry you through it. Verse 10b, the second phrase. He's, Jabez continues his prayer to God. He says, let your hand, God, be with me. Let your hand be with me. Jabez says, God, you must be with me. Let your hand be with me. What's a hand? A hand is an expression hey, you know, if I wave like this or I wave like this or I go, 
Your hand can tell you it's an expression, especially for Italian people. Hand is powerful. Hand is protection. Hand is skill. Very sad. The last and last, uh, my wife and I were talking yesterday. In the last seven days, we either either did a funeral or went to three memorial services. And yesterday, um, there was a our, our children's director, Jill Fries, and her Jill and her great husband Dave. Uh, Dave lost his father, and uh, we went to the memorial service. And some really fine things were said about Eckert. One of the things that was said about Eckert Fries is that. Um, he worked with his hands, and apparently in the church they have, um, I'm not the biggest fan of organ music, but I do like, I'm fascinated by organs and such, and, and the woodwork around some of the uh, church was done by Eckert because of hands, skillful hands. Jabez had courage because he knew God's hand would be with him. Interesting, nothing in a text says Jabez had special talents like David say, or special gifts or special abilities. All it says is he had courage. He had courage to trust God and say, God, your hand will be with me to overcome this label. To be an achiever, you must be an encouraging, uh, you must be encouraged to believe that God's hand will be with you. Martin Luther King Jr. had the courage to march through Alabama during the racist 60s because he knew God was with him. And he made this famous statement. He says, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And Jabez said, like Martin Luther King Jr., it's right. I'm going to allow you, God, to help me overcome this label. Now, how do you get the courageous strength to get through these trials. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty, what? Hand of God, that he may lift you up. How? With his mighty hand. When? In due time. So, if you want to get a label and overcome a label that people have put on you, let God lift you up. And you do that by being humble. You know, here's what I've learned. When people label you, and you've been labeled, trust me, I'm labeled all the time. People have labels for me. I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a that. There may even be some truth to some of it, and you certainly work on that. But I've had tons of labels put on me. You've had tons of labels put on yourself. You know what I've learned? I've learned that I can only focus on my character. And I let God take care of my reputation. I can't control my reputation. Can you? Can't. What can you control? You control your character. God will take care of your reputation. But notice how he'll do it? In due time. Sometimes you'll get creamed with labels. You're a jerk. You're insensitive. You're driven, you're this. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand in due time. He'll lift you up. You work on your character. The God of heaven will determine your reputation. Stop living under a label someone's trying to give you. Have the courage to humble yourself under God 
and he will lift you up. So shed the label, overcome the label. As I wrap up this morning, replace the label. Replace the label. In 1 Chronicles 4.10, the last third phrase, and keep me from harm, it's still Jabez's prayer to God, so that I will be free from Jabez. That's what he says, pain. Keep me from harm so I'll be free from pain. Again, this sounds like a selfish prayer. But remember, his name means pain. So he's saying, Lord, I've been given the name pain. I don't want to live with the name pain. I want to break from my negative past. I want to be protected by you. Shed this label. Take this label from me. In effect, he says, I want to do something great for you so that I'm not known as pain. I'm known as somebody who loves you. Take the label from me. Because only God can do that. Keep me from harm. God does not promise any of his followers to be free from harm. If you think that, then you become a Christian or you're thinking about being a Christian the wrong way. Now, becoming a Christian, sometimes your life gets more painful, but you have the grace of God to carry you. He's not saying, God, resolve me from absolute pain. He says, resolve me from the pain label, appears to be the idea. Take the pain label away from me, and it'll all be good. And then the result, look at the very bottom of your notes, the end of verse 10. And God granted his request. He says, Jabez, you offered the right prayer. I'm pleased by this. I'm going to grant that request. Life is painful even beyond labels. And can I tell you something? Jabez is a picture of what God does in the New Testament. Can I just be vulnerable and honest with all of you? All of us cause God pain, other people pain, and ourselves pain. You know why? Because we all are sinful. We all have sin. We all are Jabez because we sin. But what did Jabez do? He got his pain, his sin, and he brought it to God. And he says, God, help me do something great for you. By New Testament analogy, you can overcome the pain of your sin by saying, Jesus Christ, I come to you. I believe you're God. I believe you're man. I believe you're 100% God, 100% man. I believe you bled and died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead in the third day in the same body which you were crucified. And I put my exclusive faith in that, not in my moral goodness or anything else. Come into my life and make me new. You know what the Bible says? If you do that, God will so forgive you and cleanse you that you'll have eternal life like Thurman has, like I have, like many people here have, and maybe you don't have yet, but you can. And then guess what? God granted his request. God will grant that request. And then can I say this? The Bible says when you become a Christian, you know what God does? He puts a brand new label over your life. I forget where it is in the Bible. I like to quote the reference, but I don't know. But there's a verse that says when you become a Christian, God's banner over you his label is love. You know what God sees you as? Forgiven, loved, accepted, everything good, even though he sees that we're imperfect. So I want us to all bow our heads for just a minute, and I want to ask you, have you ever gotten rid of the label of pain in your life? Maybe it starts with Jesus Christ. You say, Jesus Christ, I've caused pain to people because of my sinfulness, and I'm sorry for that. I believe you bled and died on the cross. I ask you to come into my life by faith alone. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I put you there. 
cleanse me and make me whole. And if you say that with a heart of complete dependence and faith on Jesus alone, the Bible says you'll have eternal life. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Thurman found it. I found it. You can find it. And then, Father, beyond that, if any of us are battling labels, people labeling us as this or that or the other, help us to learn these lessons of Jabez, to reject the label, to shed the label, and to replace the label. And we ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.